as brothers and sisters in Christ to praise our almighty God. Please stand and join us as we begin by singing our praises to God together.
have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Christ. And on this Sunday, as we gather for worship, we pray that our hearts uh, will be so open to you and to the work of your spirit in us individually and corporately that, that we will be changed by being here today. Thank you for your presence with us. Be glorified as we continue in worship and we ask this through Jesus. Amen. Share what a greeting with others who are here in worship today. There's a lot of things in the bulletin. Just uh, encourage you to take a look at those. And again, Thursday, uh, we continue in the next few Sundays of Lent on Thursdays. Uh, Thursdays of Lent. We have a prayer event going on and prayer times. And you can see the information in the bulletin about that as well as other things as well. We're going to ask the ushers to come and uh, receive our offerings this morning.
some time praying together. If you'd like to come use the altar rail as the place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me.
Our Father in heaven, we bow before you today recognizing how often we fall short of what you created us to be. And we come in the spirit of surrender and forgiveness and asking for your grace upon each of us. Father, as we gather today, there are many burdens on our hearts and our minds. We pray for those who are grieving and ask for your comforting presence in every heart that is struggling today. We pray for your Holy Spirit to work healing upon all who are struggling with the difficulties of body and soul, mind and spirit. We think especially today of Beulah Avery and Jill Tyson, Priscilla Waltz, Dick Gould, Vesta Mullen, Bruce Brenneman, Bill Roski, Rebev Rett, Micah Christensen, and Belinda Roth, and Isla Shea, and Edna Howard, or Crystal Blake, and Emily Crickler. We ask for your grace upon each of them. And for others who are on our hearts and minds today, Lord, we pray for your healing mercy. We pray for peace in countries where fighting and war and violence and unrest are the norm. We pray for all who have been devastated by the Ebola virus and people living in so much pain and despair and loss of life and destruction to just the normal way of living. We pray for healing and for a complete end to this virus. We pray, Father, that you will watch over our brothers and sisters who are enduring persecution for your name. We're reminded today of the needs of the church in Myanmar. Amid fighting in this church that has been displaced along with others, we pray that you will You will give them all that they need, that you will supply for them the basic necessities and even miraculous provisions. And we pray that you would work in such ways that those who do not know you might see your loving care upon them and open their hearts to you. Father, continue to draw us close to you as as we worship you. We pray that the spirit of the cross would be upon us in power and grace. And that our hearts would be open to you through Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we offer our prayers. Remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This morning our scripture reading is from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. I would ask you to stand for the reading of the gospel. And immediately following the reading, children may be dismissed for Children's Church and Junior Church. Mark 14, 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer.
Please be seated. There are a lot of people who find it hard to believe that the Bible is true. There are a lot of people who who simply say, well, it's just a religious book and every religion has their book. Hindus have the Bhagavad Gita, the Muslims have the Quran, Christians have the Bible. And and for them, the, the idea of the scriptures as being the, the word of God, as being completely true, it's just a difficult thing to grasp. It just seems like every other religious book until you begin to compare it to other religious books. And one of the things that I find is that as I read the scriptures that for me is one of the, uh, the arguments for the veracity of scripture, the truth of scripture is the way Scripture treats God's heroes. When you look at Scripture, you you find this total honesty about God's people. There is no sense of sugarcoating the people who are, you know, God's specially called people. You see, as great as Moses is, we see his failures... As great as David is, we see his failures. There is complete honesty as you look at the scriptures. And the same thing is true about Jesus. And one of the places that we find this so clearly revealed is in this prayer in the garden. In this, as Jesus prays in the garden, you find a prayer that is, is rooted in honesty. Jesus comes to the garden. He is face to face with uh, just hours away from his arrest and eventual crucifixion. And facing this most critical moment, we would think if we were writing this, we would make Jesus, we we would portray him in the strongest possible terms. And what we find here is Jesus praying in complete honesty. Jesus' prayer is, is quite frankly, a little bit startling. Father, if I don't have to do this, I'd rather not. I mean, there's just this complete honesty about the prayer of Jesus. And it is a little bit startling. I mean, we'd like to think in this moment... That, the, that Jesus would be saying, all right, Father, let's go get them. I mean, you want to say to him, look, you're, this is the Son of God. You would expect him to, to portray this image of strength and power and let's go. Picking up the sword and ready to fight. And instead, we have this brutally honest prayer. Father, If this cup could pass from me, that's what I want. I mean, you you want to say, okay, Jesus, 
this is the time to, to see that the fullness of, your, of the spiritual center of your life on display. Strength, power, all, the, all the, the dynamics of what we think of as a powerful Christian life. And we get startling honesty. It's sort of like some of the, the psalms that we read that make us a little bit uncomfortable. You know, those kind of psalms that you, when you invite non-Christian friends to church, you say, I hope we don't read one of those today. And yet what it tells us again is that God's people can be honest with him. And as much as we may know that in our minds, I think we wrestle to really live that out and to believe that and to pray that way. Now, in this prayer of Jesus, we we find him, him being honest about what's about to happen. And he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And the, the idea of the cup is, you see it throughout a lot of, the Old, a lot of Old Testament passages. And it, it, it often means the wrath of God. It's a difficulty, a painful time, a struggle that the cup has come. And it has very negative connotations. It often involves suffering and pain and struggle. And Jesus recognizes, he uses that term intentionally. He says, I, quite frankly, honestly, isn't there another way? Uh, you know, as we talked the last few weeks, there's a, there's a I think part of his, his honest struggle is, is recognizing that there's going to be a significant amount of physical pain that he's going to face in the next few hours. Jesus understands the brutality of of governments, and the Romans are part of that, toward people who are considered criminals. And he's going to face some extreme physical pain. There is emotional pain. The fact that he has already indicated to his disciples that they're going to desert him, one's going to betray him completely, in fact, already has, One of his closest friends is going to deny even knowing him. And we know what that feels like when people that we think are on our side turn against us. I mean, it's so painful. I'm convinced that the most difficult part of this struggle is the spiritual pain that he's about to experience. You and I live our lives with, you know, living with guilt and shame. And we, we are continually needing to, to ask forgiveness for things that we have done or left undone. We understand that. We, we struggle with that. It's a, it's a part of, of our human sinfulness. But Jesus doesn't know that. He has lived a sinless life. He doesn't know. He has never experienced the guilt of disobeying his father. He's never experienced the shame of doing what he shouldn't have done or leaving undone what he should have done. He's never experienced that. He's never woken up in the morning 
regretting what he did the night before. He's never had to deal with that. But as he takes upon himself the sins of the world, this is the God's plan, the Father's plan for redeeming the world. As he faces that, he's going to feel it. All of the shame and guilt and and all of the struggle that we have, that we feel because of our sin, Jesus is going to feel that for the very first time. And because of that, just like you and I, when we, when we sin and we feel that guilt and shame, that we feel a sense of separation from the Father. We feel a sense of that, that surely God's had enough for us now. He's giving up on us. He's done with us. It, it's over. We feel that separation. And Jesus is going to feel that. And I'm convinced that as he hangs on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't believe God forsook him at all. But I think he feels that. Because he is experiencing for the first time the effects of sin. Not his sin, but ours. He's taking it upon himself. And that is looming ahead of him as he prays in the garden. And and it's not that Jesus doesn't want to be the means of redeeming the world. That's why he came. And I believe he is fully committed to that. He's simply asking, isn't there another way? Father, is there another way to accomplish this end without having to feel the agony being separated from you. One of the great temptations of life is, spiritual temptations particularly, is taking shortcuts. It's, I think in many ways it's, it's one of the things at the heart of, of what Satan is tempting Jesus to do in the wilderness. Early on in his ministry is it's beginning and he goes to the wilderness and for 40 days he is tempted when you read that story of Jesus being tempted, I mean, I have a tendency to, I've always had a tendency to look at that and think he spent 40 days being, you know, not eating and praying and struggling. And then the last part of it, Satan comes and tempts him. I don't think that's how Satan works. I think he was on him the whole time for 40 days. He was badgering him. And it wasn't, it wasn't a case of Jesus just simply giving these glib answers to this temptation. I think it was a real battle, a real struggle. And the temptation is to, to shortcut the end. Because, you know, to say, turn these rocks into bread instead of letting the, the nature take its course. The temptation to jump off the top of the temple and to be rescued by the angels, to be saved and have this awesome miracle, to bow down to Satan in order to gain all of the kingdoms of the world. I mean, all of these things are going to come to him eventually. But the temptation is to say, let's let's work around the hard way and do it the easy way. And I think in many ways that's part of the temptation here as he prays in the garden. Isn't there an easier, shortcut way to get to the end that we all want? 
And he's honest with the father about this struggle. As I ponder this this honesty and prayer of Jesus, I, I think about our own struggles to be honest with God in our prayers. And I, and I think sometimes we're better at that than others, but we, I'm asking myself, why is it that we struggle so much with that? And perhaps one reason is there's, there's something in the back of our minds that feels like it's not spiritual to, to tell God how we really feel about him. And the struggle that we're facing about him. You know, something in our minds says that I can think it, that's one thing. But if I say it, then it becomes real. As if God doesn't know what we're thinking. God doesn't know our hearts. And so we, we think, I don't, I'm not really being honest with God if I just sort of hide this from him. And the scriptures tell us over and over again that we can't hide things from God. He knows. And there is a sense of feeling like I shouldn't feel this way toward God. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't question God. I shouldn't be upset with God. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be honest with God because, it, you know, it, I should just be able to say, okay, God, whatever. And hopefully eventually we get to that. But a part of getting to that is being honest about how we feel. It's not a sin to be honest with God. Even though sometimes we as the church sort of give that impression. That the really spiritual people are the ones who, they don't wrestle with these kinds of questions. They don't struggle with, with doing what God wants us to do. They don't struggle with, with the hard things of life. They're just continually giving it up. The reality is all of us are going to struggle. All of us are going to face difficult times when we are wrestling to do what God wants us to do or to not do what God doesn't want us to do. There are times where we're going to be frustrated with the things that happen in life. And sometimes we turn to God and we are upset with him. We're angry with God. We're, we're, we're frustrated with God. We're irritated with God. And something in us feels like we can't really tell God how we feel. Because if we do, we're going to get in trouble for that. But when I read the scriptures, I see some of the most spiritual people being honest with God. And no one more so than Jesus. Someone was saying to me not too long ago that there are times where when they have to they pray to God and they tell God that they forgive him. Not ask God to forgive them, but telling God, I forgive you. And he said, is that okay? It sounds kind of unspiritual. Uh, Yeah, that's okay. Again, it's being honest with God about what we're feeling and how we're struggling. Sometimes, and it's not that God has done something wrong that he needs to be forgiven. We just need to work through it. And a part of working through it is saying, God, I'm frustrated with you, but I I forgive you. And the process is for us, not for him. 
It's not as though God has done something wrong. It's just that we have to work through it sometimes. And that's one of the ways of being honest with him. And we need to do that. Holding things in, being secretive, hiding things, is not, is not a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Honesty is what God is asking for us. And sometimes the most spiritual prayers we can pray are, God, I'm frustrated with you. I don't understand you. I don't want to do what you want me to do. I'm just going to be honest with you. But it's in honesty that we then can get to where God wants us to be. No one gets, no one moves forward spiritually by being secretive and holding things in. I mean, that's a, that's a principle of, of life. I mean, it's the first step of every 12-step program. I got to be honest about my struggle. It, it's at the heart of every good relationship. We have to be honest with each other. And I need to tell you, that hurt me, that bothers me, that, that's a struggle for me. And it doesn't mean that we do that in a way because people have hurt us and so we're going to hurt them back. But a, a real, genuine, love-based relationship is, is rooted in honesty. And honesty is a risk, but love is a risk. And the people who really risk are the people who really love. And the people who risk and love are honest with each other. And God doesn't discourage honest prayers. He encourages them. And that means that as the church, we're going to have to encourage it as well. I think one of the reasons we are hesitant about praying honest prayers is because as a church, we make each other feel as though that's inappropriate. You know, if someone, if we're, in a, if we're in a group setting and someone prays brutally on, a brutally honest prayer, it makes us feel uncomfortable. And something in the back of our minds is saying, boy, I, I really thought they were further along spiritually than they are. But the truth is, those are some of the most spiritual prayers we can pray. Because God wants us to be honest. It's important to be honest. It's essential to be honest. And as a church, we've got to let each other be honest. We need to encourage that. We need to develop a, an atmosphere where we can pray honestly with each other and help each other. And sometimes that makes us feel uncomfortable, but that's okay. The point is not how comfortable can we feel. The point is how can we help each other grow spiritually? I remember hearing years ago, uh, back when I was in seminary, a guy talking about, uh, was, I was at the church service and talking about a holiness, a holiness guy was preaching and, and he was talking about, uh, that we sang that day the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And uh, it's a, you know, it's a great song of the church, but he was talking about the last verse of that song. And one of the phrases of that song says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And he spent about five minutes just railing on those words. 
We should not feel that way. We shouldn't say those things. That's a horrible thing to admit. What kind of relationship with God do we have if we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love? That's the worst thing in the world we could say. And when I first heard that, I thought, yeah, he's right. But the more I pondered, I thought, no, he's wrong. We need to be honest enough to say, I struggle, I wrestle. I don't always get it right. In fact, I don't get it right more than I shouldn't get it right. It's a, it's a battle. It's a struggle. Should we be getting better? Yeah, of course. That's the goal, is to get better. But we get to the goal not by not by uh, hiding the truth about ourselves. We get to the goal by acknowledging the truth about ourselves. And I think people who have progressed in their walk with Christ do so because they're not afraid to be honest with God. And a part of being honest with God sometimes is being honest with each other. It's one of the reasons that we need small groups because it's hard to be honest in a large group of people. And it's probably not always appropriate to be brutally honest in a large group of people. But there ought to be someone or some group of people that we can come to and we can be honest with each other. There are historians who, who will, who will uh, uh, tell us that the, the real genius of the Methodist movement and what John Wesley did and the revival of 18th century England and beyond was the small groups Wesley created. There are all kinds of things that went on during the Methodist movement, but over and over again, I, I keep reading and hearing from people that the real genius of that movement and what really sparked it were those groups because it was a safe place for people to be honest. And they asked each other honest questions. Let's talk about the victories we've had this week and let's celebrate with each other. And then we went, they went around the room and said, okay, what sins have you committed this week that you need to confess to everyone? And I think in our day and age, that would probably clear the room pretty quickly. But it shouldn't. Because in acknowledging our sin and being honest about it, we're breaking the chains and the bonds that the evil one holds over us. Because one of the evil one's most powerful tools is secrecy. If he can keep us from being honest with someone about our struggles, he will hold us in bondage. It's when we have the freedom to be honest that the chains start breaking. And we all need a safe place. Someone, a group of people where we can pray honest prayers and we can have honest conversations. It's all part of our journey, getting to the destination that we want. And God's called us to, to get to. Part of our problem, I think, is that we, we think the goal of our walk with God, the most important thing about our walk with God is the destination. And it's very vitally important. 
But really, the point of our, of our relationship with God is the journey. If all we're thinking about is the destination, then life and our relationship with God just becomes a checklist. Following rules. And it always leads to legalism. And all we're thinking about is getting to the end. But if our, if our purpose, if our, if our idea of what it means to be a Christian is not just the destination, but it's the journey, then we're thinking about relationship. And we're thinking about every moment of every, of our, every day. And we're thinking about how God is at work in us right now. And how we're relating to one another right now. And what I find so fascinating is that when we give ourselves to the journey, the destination takes care of itself. If you think about your closest relationships, if all you're thinking about is, is trying to, to get to the end, it'll never happen. Because what often will take place is we start living and we start, we start operating in an end justifies the means kind of mindset. But when you think about those relationships, if, if your purpose, if, if your mindset is just on the daily relationship, what does this need right here in the moment? What are we wrestling with right here in the moment? then the relationship begins to take root and grow. And you start thinking about how you can love each other, how you can care for each other, support each other, forgive each other, be honest with each other. And the goal that we're dreaming of for this relationship begins to happen. And this is what takes place in our relationship with God. It's about living with him moment by moment. It's about relationship with God that Jesus comes to enable us to experience. And it's rooted in honesty. Honest prayers are not the sign of weakness. They're the sign of strength. And you look at the scriptures, you, listen, you read stuff from people through history... It's the people who are willing to risk being honest with God and then because of that being honest with other people who become the spiritual giants that we all respect and admire and want to model. But all of this ultimately, honest prayer, is rooted in, in our in an inherent trust of our loving Abba Father. Ultimately, we will never be honest with God if we don't really believe he loves us the way he says he does. If you're afraid someone's going to reject you for being honest, you're not going to be honest. If you really believe that being honest is going to sever the relationship, if people really knew what you were like, if people really knew what I was like, 
and we think we're, we're positive, if they really knew us, they would reject us, that would end it, then we're going to try to hide it. But if we're convinced that being honest isn't going to sever the relationship, ultimately the honesty is, the, is what's going to create an atmosphere of strengthening the relationship, then we'll do it. If we believe that God at his heart really loves us, really wants a relationship with us, then we are much more apt to be honest with him. And that's why Jesus can kneel in the garden and in this crisis moment be brutally honest with his father. Because he knows to the very depths of his being that the father is love. And no matter what happens, that will never change. And you and I if we could get a deeper glimpse of the love of God, I think, I'm convinced, we would be much more honest about how we pray to God and how we connect and communicate with each other. Obviously, I, I don't know what an honest prayer for you might look like today. But I do know that that's what the Father wants from each of us. Just lay out our hearts. Be honest. Be open. And then let him begin to work in us and change us and heal us and love us. Father, we pray that you will Give us courage to be honest with you. Open our eyes to see your love for us unchanging. Eternal. And out of that understanding, give us the ability to be honest with you as we pray, as we live, that we might become the people that you created us to be. We pray this through Christ. Amen. stand and join us as we sing together.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now forevermore. Amen.